So, good evening, everybody. Welcome to another Sunday afternoon, or evening, rather, at, uh, here at Emmaus Way. Very happy to be back here. My name is, if you don't know me, my name is Tim Carlos. Mr. Dan Hall is here playing drums, and um, we have the pleasure of Ms. Billy Feather here on stand-up bass today. Yeah, and I've been invited in to sort of, you know, if, if, you're, if you're new to us, if you haven't been hanging around this summer, we've been doing this YM series, and tonight we get to hear from S.K. Fishback, who's going to talk about a lot of things in her past and how that led her to identify as a contemplative, but one, one of the things that she sort of worked on putting at a sit list was Morning Has Broken, which is a song that she sang as Episcopal School and remembered fondly as a song of hope and... You know, so we're going to do it congregationally. So these guys are going to help us out. I'm up here to remind you to sing. So I will sing as much as you don't sing. So, you know, that, that should be your cue. So we're not going to sing here. So. We're relying on you to carry this. Blackbird has 
Excellent. So that's a lovely start by way of like a sort of early 20th century Episcopal tradition to us, most of us probably through Cat Stevens, off teaser in the fire cat, but a great way to start tonight. Welcome to Emmaus Way. If you're new to us, um, most especially welcome you. We like to describe ourselves as a community captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a story that we try and live out here together. Um, on Sunday nights, in our lives together during the week, and in all sorts of ways in Durham and the world throughout the week. We see all those as kind of connected and are trying to plug our lives into that bigger narrative. Another thing we always do in terms of singing together is to let our kids lead us in a community song at the beginning of each gathering, and they're still talking about the Holy Spirit and Pentecost in ordinary time here. So, And Joel has an announcement. Just real quickly, um, two things. So I also work at Immaculate Conception Church and Immaculate Catholic School. And on Tuesday, we're going to be having a work day um, for making materials. So uh, we've done this in the past. If any of you are also interested, we can also make materials for us to use here because everything we use is handmade in the atrium, uh, which is what we call the classroom that the kids are in at Sunday school. Um, So we'll be making figures out of wood, painting, clay figures, um, so some stuff is really easy if you just want to copy things, uh, trace things. Some things more, are more complex. I will send a note on um, eWay Social, but it's Tuesday, 6 to 8, uh, at Immaculate Conception. And then also we will be hosting training, if anyone's interested in the Montessori-based approach that we use here. Um, we will be having a training uh, starting in October. Um, I'll have more information on that in the next coming weeks. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, kids. They're going to head off to their atriums. So I think, if I'm not mistaken, Tim Condor has been at Wild Goose all week and is still trying to get back. He he described it a logistical nightmare is what he said. Yeah, anyway, so stuck in the mud, quite literally. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, he's on his way back. but, yeah, I was glad to, I'm sure he'll have some dispatches from that experience. He was there speaking some and sort of, yeah, making connections with other folks that are in 
progressive Christian space, if you know anything about that festival. Um, if you're relatively new to us, so you're going to figure out who we are, how do we get connected to what's going on, a couple of things we'd always mention about that. There's a green card and a yellow card out on the table there in the foyer. Um, the green card would be one that has information about us, staff contacts, um, you know, different volunteer rotations, things like that. The yellow card would be where you could give us your information if you want to get on that EY social listserv Joel mentioned or the weekly listserv that sends around sort of updates about what's happening in this gathering each week. Um, we'd, we'd love to love to have you do that. Um, there's also a, a bowl out there is one of the ways that you can give financially to our community. All that's kind of sitting out there. Um, one thing I would mention specifically, I think this is my only specific announcement, unless somebody stops me, so you'd be thinking. But we did have an ask from Religious Coalition for Nonviolent Durham recently. I just want to throw that back out in this space. There's some folks... Uh, they're really wanting to get a faith team around a couple of, is it a couple of people in particular? Just one? Um, and they came to Emmaus Way first because we've, we've done that before and they feel like our community is just really oriented around that, our sort of thick community thing. It seems like works really well with that faith team space. So if you're, it sounds like something you'd be interested in. That's basically just a group of small group of people being paired up with someone who's transitioning out of incarceration um, and you have always a representative from religious coalition is there but the rest of that team is made up of people from a faith community like ours so if that's something you want to get involved in one of those is hopefully going to be booting up soon i think you can talk to greg piotrowski who i don't see tonight but you could also talk to molly or somebody like that um, yeah so that's one specific thing that's going on of a lot of different missional things if you wanted to ask somebody about starting to get involved that would be an example um anything else that i missed all right so in that case i'll invite uh, no molly up to lead us in our litany of reflection thanks ben um we all know that really this entire past month has been heartbreaking um, and tragic um, in our world and in our country and specifically in this past week um, it seems to, I don't know about you, but the weight of the world just seems to be like crashing down on so many, um, and on so many we love and on us. And so we are going to join as a community of faith in a litany of reflection to name pain, um, and to also ask, have a bit of confession and time for God's grace and love to enter in, even when we feel like there's not space for that grace and love. So I will read the unbolded parts, and you all will read the bolded parts, like a good old church liturgy. Um, so let us reflect. Let us not rush to the language of healing before understanding the fullness of the injury and the depth of the wound. Let us not offer false equivalencies, thereby diminishing the particular pain being felt in a particular circumstance in a particular historical moment. Let us not speak of reconciliation without speaking of reparations and restoration, or how we can repair the breach and how we can restore the loss. Let us not rush past the loss of this mother's child this father's child, someone's beloved son. Let us not value property over people 
Let us not value a false peace over a righteous justice. Let us not be afraid to sit with the ugliness, the messiness, and the pain that this life and community together. Let us not offer cliches to the grieving, those whose hearts are being torn asunder. Instead, let us mourn black and brown men and women, those killed extrajudicially. mercy. Show us our own complicity and injustice. Convict us for our indifference. Forgive us when we have remained silent. Equip us with a zeal for righteousness. Never let us grow accustomed or acclimated to unrighteousness. Amen. And now Tim. And musicians lead us in our song of preparation. So. Once, once more, I find myself here and, and offering a, a Nick Lowe song. This is a song we've, uh, I've, I've certainly, and I think Dan with me has done here before. Lately, I've let things slide. Is there, is there a particular reason why you chose this, this tune, SK? Okay. All right, without further ado, um, this is uh, Lately, I've Let Things Slide. With a growing sense of dread and a hammer in my head, fully clothed upon the bed, I wake up to the world that lately I've been living in. There's a cut upon my brow, must have cut myself somehow, but I can't remember now. Front doors open wide Lately I've let things slide And I go 
found myself again I don't really hurt Smoking I once quit Now I've got one lit I just fell back into it Along with my pride Lately I've let things slide questionable as to whether I, I know it now. <laughs> But we'll do our best. This is a song from the, the, the Avid Brothers. It's called February 7. Across my memory, the no amount of. 
Again, Tim, Dan, Billy, great to have you with us for the first time. I hope it's the first of many times. So we have, to, to reach back a few weeks into the series we've been doing, we've spent the summer, what is it, about five or six of these now, where we've listened to people from our community. We started with Tim, we've done Molly, I think Jim talked last week. Am I missing somebody? July 4th was in there. Um, but we've been doing this series about stories of faith um, the, the, from people in our community, giving them a night to talk about what kind of what got them here and what they're carrying with them, good or bad, good and bad, usually, into the life of faith that we share together. And in, in believing that those stories matter, not just to the individuals that tell them, but to us as a community when they're told in our space, and that somehow the collision of those stories has something deeply important to do about what we are as a community of faith and what it means to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ here together. And I was really grateful when I reached out to Tim to work on a set list to discover that SK and Tim had already developed a set list 
Um, and that was, it was great because I think what you've already seen, and SK's going to stand up and talk to us tonight, but there's so many thick connections, not just to this week, but I think to just whole series. Like, there's no fortune at the end of the... This is the story we've been hearing for several weeks now. There's no fortune at the end of the road that has no end. There's no returning to the spoils once you've spoiled the thought of them. There's no falling back asleep once you've wakened from the dream. But this, at the end of all these, we've heard people say, I'm rested and I'm ready to begin. In spite of that, I'm feeling like there's a way forward. And, some, and, the, and the key of that is, is somehow living out my history in this faith community tonight. So in, in, before we pass the piece, I just wanted to point out what great songs we have tonight. Since I didn't pick them, I can celebrate them all the more, right? Reaching for Hope, songs about living through pain, often both at once and then finding ways to be faithfully present in the midst of all those things. So that's the kind of story I've got some inclination what SK is going to talk about. Really looking forward to that. Um, but before we do that, as we always do, I'd invite you to sh- pass the peace of Christ to one another. Um, you know, go and grab a snack, grab some more coffee, and we'll be back with SK just shortly. Hey, everyone. Um, if you could come back to the middle. Um, SK is about to share why I am a contemplative. Um, and I don't know if all, a lot of you know this. Um, it's probably not surprising when you know SK. But SK was my first connection to Emmaus Way over a year ago. And I could not, the church was smart in having SK be that contact. Um, and just her ability to share herself and her story and to engage in others' story. Um, it's just, I think, really makes our community vibrant. And so I'm really thankful that she is here tonight to share a bit more of her story and why she is a contemplative. Um, And I know that her heart and love and light are just going to shine through. So thanks for being brave and willing to share tonight. So take it away. All right. Thanks so much. And I historically really dislike public speaking, but I feel so much love from you all that I just don't feel that nervous. So... Um, yeah, if you know me too, you know I read. Apologize. I apologize for that. I think it's really fun when people can think on the fly, but that's not how I work. So that's why I told you to bring your knitting. Um, here we go. All right. So before I begin, I want to acknowledge that the stories in this room vary greatly. And I honor your story and offer my own with the humility that my path may not look like your path, and that's okay. I also can't help but see the white, upper-middle-class, cisgender, hetero privilege weaved throughout my story and want to acknowledge the painful asymmetries in our world after recent senseless violence against the LGBTQI community and those with brown bodies. Centering my story at this moment um, feels a bit distasteful, truthfully, but I hope I can weave even this story into what's happening right now. So here we go. I still remember the intense joy I felt as a young child. I loved to sing and felt a powerful connection to the divine. As a high schooler attending an Episcopal school in Atlanta, I still sang, um, in this case, traditional hymns every Wednesday morning at chapel, which you guys got a flavor of this morning. That's what it was like. Yep. Um, We'd sing Morning Has Broken, and my eyes would tear up. I just always had this really felt sense of joy. I'm the youngest of three and the only girl born to parents raised in the Deep South. 
Um, my father is a lawyer from Jackson, Mississippi. My mom, a homemaker and a southern gypsy from the Mississippi Delta. My mom was raised Methodist with zero religious baggage. She is St. Francis reincarnated with her love of plants, animals, and all things. My dad loves to tell the story about however, whenever my mom goes through the checkout line of the grocery store, she hears a life story and makes a lifelong friend. On my mom's nightstand, you'll likely find the poems of Mary Oliver or the Sufi poet Rumi. My dad was raised Baptist at what was effectively a megachurch in Jackson, um, Mississippi, complete with a bowling alley. Having lost his father at age three to polio, the church stood in like a family to him with kindly members stopping by after school to help him memorize Bible verses. He was a Bible all-star and was favored to become a minister. But in his adolescence, he began noticing things that didn't sit right with him. A mentor of his went through a divorce, and the church voted to kick him and his wife out. My dad's was the only dissenting vote. He began to notice theology that sentenced all kinds of people to hell, and he chafed at not being allowed to dance because, quote, the only reason to dance is for sex. That's what he was told. Um, He was not allowed to dance at his high school dances. He watched the church's response, or lack of response, to the civil rights movement. And as a college freshman, he left and never came back. A move that had enormous repercussions for him and his family and in his town. It led to a move out of Mississippi, because he couldn't imagine being able to achieve his dreams not being a member of a church. On my dad's nightstand, you might find a copy of Capital by Thomas Piketty, or whatever's been recently well-reviewed by the New York Times Review of Books. We went to a church when I was a little girl, and it was always a struggle for my dad. When the service ended, he corralled us straight to the door, avoiding eye contact and conversation. Later on, Sunday soccer games crowded out church attendance, or at least that's what we said. And as I explored groups like Young Life or Fellowship of Christian Athletes, where they served cheese grits and Chick-fil-A chicken biscuits, a look of concern would wash over my dad's face. He'd make Socratic inquiries about the credibility of the Bible. For a time, I tried to answer with apologetics, but intense logic around faith felt lifeless to me. In any case, my dad was my first BS monitor for religion, and that's a shout-out to Jim Thomas. BS, yep. I was a gleam in my dad's eye. Once when I asked him why they named me Sarah Kate, he replied, because we thought it sounded presidential. He communicated his hopes that I'd become a surgeon, a financier, a politician, or a lawyer. Having little ambition for myself or great wealth and a lot of idealism, I made up my mind to be a professional who would save the world, probably through nonprofits. My face first encountered the feeling of cold, dark pavement my freshman year of college. I seized the opportunity to go north for school, where I hoped to continue playing soccer. A nagging knee and foot injury became chronic and robbed me of the speed I needed to compete on the soccer field. And for the first time in my life, I didn't have sports and, along with them, any solid sense of identity. I encountered cultural confusion, like the time I went in for a hug and was shoved away. That happened. I gained 20 pounds as I learned how not to carbo-load and felt the discomfort of a body I didn't recognize. I struggled to find my groove in the classroom. I had my first boyfriend and got dumped. And sunlight ended at 4 p.m. at that latitude, which intensified my disequilibrium. To top it off, my health failed when I got mono all the while, thousands of miles from home. Everything solid shattered for me that freshman fall. And then, my soccer teammate invited me to a college fellowship meeting. 
Feeling like I had nowhere to go, her invitation felt a bit like a last resort for possible relief, but was also a little risky. I felt skeptical, what with a life of processing religion through a BS filter. But I was also so tired and really wanted to belong somewhere. I went and found people who genuinely seemed to practice loving one another. I sang along with a live band. I was invited to backyard barbecues where ragtag bunches of students played frisbee and shared meals on paper plates. The unity, diversity, magnetism, joy, and hospitality of it all hooked me. I joined Bible studies and memorized verses and attended weekly hour-long intercessory prayer meetings. My heart began to come alive again, and I experienced intimacy with people in a way that I never had before, lifting tender prayer requests to the heavens. In these spaces, I saw the possibility for non-competition, for genuine support and care for others, and for a different kind of community. My conversion to the path of Jesus was ecstatic. Against the dark backdrop of my life at the time, God brought radiant light and joy. I experienced all kinds of elevation and told people about Jesus. If the sense of fervor would fade, I'd manically read spiritual books and pray while terrified that I'd lost God or had done something wrong. And that is a shout-out to Kate Bowler and the Prosperity Gospel. Sophomore summer was my first encounter with a redhead at a progressive dinner party who baked homemade pies, strawberry, rhubarb, and peach blueberry. He had my attention, though we went our separate ways. At the end of junior year, about a year later, a friend arranged for that same redhead, who you might know as Luke, to give me a ride to D.C., my parents' new home, on his drive to Georgia. Along with another girl, we listened to Harry Potter, narrated by Jim Dale, as we drove southward in Luke's green pickup truck. We dropped off the other passenger, and I navigated us. Remember, these were pre-GPS times, to my folks' new home in Washington, D.C. My ace navigating managed to get us on the express lane to Dulles Airport, which has no exits for 10 miles. I cringed in embarrassment, waiting for a grumpy response. Luke laughed charitably and told me his mom got their family lost all the time and that he didn't mind. We exchanged postcards all summer, and when we returned for school our senior year, I was further initiated with Luke, who had a literal practice of the table. He and his housemates would invite groups of friends over for dinner, and they, mostly Luke, would lovingly prepare these meals, which we enjoyed over hours of crack jokes and conversation. Luke often took the Iron Chef challenge and would incorporate any ingredient on the fly. One night, a meteor shower passed over us at 2 a.m. A group of us got in our sleeping bags next to the river for the big show, and Luke surprised everyone with hot chocolate and fresh out of the skillet beignets at 2 in the morning. (laughs) Everything about Luke felt magical and kind and generous. And the more I got to know Luke, the more I, I saw great integrity. In order to honor the feelings of a friend, Luke kept his distance from me for many months until I made plain my feelings for him. All of this was miraculous for me. Probably like most people, I wondered if I was lovable. But here was someone who seemed to enjoy me as much as I enjoyed him. In contrast to my aggressively spiritual life of Bible studies and singing and prayer, Luke did not find himself at home in the church or in the Christian narrative. In a small town in Georgia where he grew up, the mark of Christians seemed to be hypocrisy and dysfunction. A deeply devout Christian co-worker of Luke's dad sent a series of pornographic images in the mail to their customer, claiming they were from his dad. Messed up, right? And Luke's grandfather raised three daughters and told them not to go to church because he didn't like the Bible's attitude toward women. Luke was proud not to be from the tradition of a book filled with genocide and oppression 
and a people whose message can be co-opted for just about any purpose. Who wouldn't be proud not to live into that? I proactively met with friends and mentors about dating someone who didn't share my faith. My struggle was evident, and the consensus was to trust my sense of discernment. I told Luke I couldn't ever imagine not going to church, and that it was important to me to have a partner who would try to participate in the life of faith with me. Luke said he'd never changed just for me, but that he would come to church. I respected his integrity. And for the second time in my life, I got a BS monitor for religion. (laughs) Happened again. Luke and I married at 24, and in order to share um, this enormous part of my life, my faith with Luke, I discovered I had to find new language. Christian language made Luke cringe, so I began to try translating the ideas and concepts in my heart into simple words. I looked for metaphors and similarities in science and tried to call out connections from works of fiction or other spiritual traditions to communicate the heart of my experience. I found spacious language big enough to hold both of us. And I wondered if Luke would ever find himself at home in my vernacular and continue to honor his integrity and discernment. I remember my surprise one day as I explained my experience of the Holy Spirit. I said, it's like you're going about your business and you sense a small voice within you urging you to take action. Oh, Luke said, I experience that all the time. I just don't usually pay attention to it. (laughs) Wait a minute, I wondered. Is he telling me he knows the spirit I know? I began to wonder if our language differences prevented us from really seeing, hearing, and understanding one another. Indeed, the more I let my guard down to speak in accessible language, the more astonished I'd be by the many places we found ourselves in the same story. Luke always chafed at the doctrinal parts of church, but enjoyed the music and the concepts of hospitality and love, practices he taught me about daily through his actions and faithfulness. A couple of years into our marriage, I had a great job, and we lived in sunny California. Yet on weekends, when work and activities subsided, I often found myself crying for no discernible reason. It was as if I was met with a wall of sadness. Growing up, when my family spoke about mental health, it was in the vocabulary of crazy and shrinks and was considered a pseudoscience. They aren't mean-spirited, but were raised before so much of the research and understanding we now have about mental health. In any case, I began to become aware that I was hurting, but shame at even naming that need ran very deep, and I kept everything to myself, and I did not get help for a very long time. After California, we moved to Durham so that I could go to school to realize my dream of saving the world. I hoped to take the ingenuity I'd witnessed in startup culture in the Silicon Valley to solve the world's problems, and Duke's business school offered a specialization in social entrepreneurship. In my mind and in my own narrative, there was no higher calling for me than this. This was where everything was headed. I made it through the required classes to a seminar with a pioneer of social entrepreneurship. We wrestled deeply with the issues and stories in the field, and one day in class we had a culminating conversation that took the wind out of my sails. In case after case we had read, the scarce resources and the world's problems weren't money, talent, or best practices. The biggest problems by far were instead a lack of mutuality, proximity, and relationship. I felt like I'd been punched in the gut as I realized I couldn't just apply a toolkit to save the world. Sounds really naive, but... That was where I was at that time. And in fact, that applying money, talent, and best practices without proximity and mutuality often ended in destruction and a loss of human dignity. 
After graduation, I took a job with a local startup nonprofit working to help small and medium-sized businesses employ practices that benefit people and the environment. And it was a perfect fit topically. I gave it my all. However, as I kept trying to live into this business leader savior aspiration, I found myself and energy evaporating. In a final blow to this vision of myself, I accepted a request to serve as the keynote speaker at a local tech conference. It was the middle of the financial crisis, and morale was low, and my task was to speak life, inspiration, and innovation into tech workers. (laughs) (laughs) Though I detest public speaking, I'm here today, I accepted thinking I'd boldly face my fears and finally really rise above to meet my potential. My preparation turned into obsessive practice, and I'd spend hours upon hours each week trying to get it just right to crush it. The day came, and I gave my talk to a full room at the Washington Duke, and not a single person came up to me afterward. My talk fell flat, which felt humiliating and was the last nail in the coffin in a vision and narrative for myself that was just lifeless. I lost all hope and motivation and was overcome with anxiety, glued to the couch. We'd been coming to Emmaus Way for a shortish time then, and were a bit like ghosts. We arrived right on time and left right after the service ended. Of course, Dave Eford uh, always greeted us warmly, um, but we really didn't know anyone. One day, I mustered up the courage to ask him for a referral to a counselor. I was so ashamed of my need that I told him it was for a friend. He gave me the name and number for someone practically everyone in the church has seen, This must be a really messed up church, I thought. (laughs) But I felt simultaneously comforted. I showed up to meet with the counselor and tried to keep it together. But very quickly, I wept. As she listened to me, she returned my shameful, furtive glances with a calm gaze of deep empathy and compassion. Her response was a healing salve and a turning point for me. The place of shame and hidden brokenness in me shifted as I was so compassionately received. We did fast work together to begin to address the root of my sadness and anxiety. She gave me a book on peace by the Vietnamese-French Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, and I discovered the gentle and transformative practices of mindfulness and self-compassion. Luke and I continued to come to Emmaus Way as ghosts, but then another season came, not dissimilar from the one Jim Thomas shared about a couple weeks back. It was dark and felt unending. Utterly burned out, I had left my job before having Asa, my son. Having a child was a fearful thing for me. I knew nothing about babies. Postpartum, I found myself with depression and anxiety, nearly unraveling from sleeplessness. And on top of that, I found myself in a personal situation that felt excruciating and cruel. I constantly asked how this could be happening. My whole narrative of saving the world, of being a productive member of society, of being self-sufficient, of not having problems, of being good, was annihilated. Was I being punished? Without sharing the specifics of this dark time, perhaps you can imagine yourself at your most vulnerable, facing brokenness and shame, while simultaneously feeling hijacked by a sense of fear and lack of safety, and being asked to give of yourself in ways that feel impossible. I was living a story that I did not want to be in. And the pressure of the situation grew and grew until I finally reached out again to Tim. And that saint of a man listened to me talk for two long hours in a coffee shop. And at the end of that time, I asked, what am I missing? 
Tim responded to me with the words I least wanted to hear. You need to tell your story more. That's what he told me. You need to tell your story more. I would have so preferred that he criticized me. Instead, he found me to be a human in need of humans. A chance to tell my story came at a wine night with a few women from Emmaus Way not long after. Mindful of Tim's encouragement, I went with reservation to meet with women I barely knew. I found myself telling my story to a seatmate terrified. She listened to my overwhelmingly personal tale and nearly shouted, The same thing happened to me! (laughs) I was utterly stunned. I had truly felt all alone. As I listened to this sweet soul recount her challenging time, peace and life immediately began to rush into me. I felt like I could breathe for the first time in months. Here was a lifeline who became a companion for front porch talks and comfort. This kind soul became a dear friend, a living reminder of God's love in that time. Though it seemed everything had crumbled and I was getting it all wrong, this miracle happened. And God met me with another friend who was deeply present to me in that time, encouraging me to call if I was having a tough day. Really? I stammered incredulously. I can call you when I'm having a hard time? This friend endured hours of me talking about my struggles, perhaps sensing my discomfort and reticence to fully relinquish the various narratives of myself that were dying. He shared a book with me that included an ancient Hasidic parable about the 50th gate. The parable entails a student who has come to the end of his questions about God and finds himself before an abyss with a question no human can answer. The only way forward, the rabbi who visits tells him, is to surrender and be embraced by his community. Another trusted mentor gave me yet more bread to chew on. She suggested that there are two ways to live your life. One is to stand at a distance and try to solve everything from the past so that one day, eventually, maybe you arrive in the present. The other is to live in the present, trusting you have everything you need, gently noticing what needs attention, and attending to it as it comes. I can't tell you how earth-shaking these encounters were for me. Along with the companionship and the wisdom of friends, during this time I also found and embraced spiritual practice that relied not on my crushing it, but on a love and goodness outside of me that met me in my poverty. Practices like simple presence, centering prayer, imaginative scripture reading, and Lectio Divina had their own life and energy to them, often deeply healing and mysterious. And still other practices like walking meditation, breath meditation, and yoga calmed my nervous system and heightened a gentle self-awareness, enabling me to stay rooted in the present and move beyond my conditioning as a human so that I could open myself to surrender. The thousand deaths I died during that season and what followed led me to slowly discover and participate in an entirely different way of life. In this land beyond control and certainty, in surrender, self-care, vulnerability, silence, and prayer that does not depend on my goodness, options have emerged that have simply never been possible before. For example, at times I see my ego lashing out internally in real time, ready to sabotage the situation, and I somehow find the space and grace to choose something not based on my woundedness or conditioning. That's the first, really, in this season. Other times, I'll be going about my business and suddenly realize fully a way that I failed a friend. 
and I'll have the strength to vulnerably reach out and make it right. Or I'll notice for the first time a truly destructive habitual thought pattern that has caused me to suffer since forever and address it. Since this shift, I can hear difficult things about whiteness and privilege and ways that I'm complicit in empire and move through my reactive defensiveness to hear, to be present, and to examine. Or sometimes a person or situation will come to mind, and I'll show up in ways I'd have been too fearful to before, but by some grace, I'll feel completely safe and at peace. Richard Rohr has said about spiritual awakening, your life is not about you. You are about life. When it felt like, by no accomplishment of my own, I couldn't possibly be about myself anymore, I seemed to, against all odds, find life. So what does any of this have to do with contemplation? And what is contemplation anyway? So I'm going to pose that to you all now. Um, Just some questions. What forms of contemplation have you tried or are you familiar with? And how might you describe contemplation if you want to take a crack at that? Is it something that you know about? Is it something that you, yeah, like what's your familiarity with contemplation or your experience? With me, it's journaling. Uh, my mind wanders if I don't have a pen in my hand. So I will write myself a question, and then I'll start answering it um, by writing also. So journaling. Anyone else? Yeah, me too. Yoga helps helps me a lot. Yeah. So moving. Yeah. And and what? Anybody want to take a crack at like what is contemplation? Like what is? Uh, I think we know the practices, but do you have any words to try to get at like what's happening there? That's a challenging question. I think for me, it's um, intentionally creating space um, for my whole being and the spirit to interconnect. And I'm not controlling it. But that's, like, really hard. And I often... (laughs) I don't know that I do it well, but, like, I think when... Yeah, there's just something about... I imagine creating space within myself for my full self and for God, the spirit to enter. Okay. Yeah, I think that's so well said. Um, and it's and it's not formulaic and it's not automatic and it is mysterious and full of grace. Um, any, any other thoughts on contemplation? Okay. I think about it being like what what happens before action. Like if you're, like if you're saying like creating space before you that's awesome. So, like, kind of intention-based, like, whatever you're doing. I love that. Um, so, St. Gregory the Great has called contemplation resting in God. Forms of contemplation were practiced by the Desert Fathers in the 3rd th- century, and many saints and mystics, including Augustine, Hildegard of Bingen, Meister Eckhart, Julian of Norwich, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Teresa of Lisieux, and more modern practitioners like Thomas Merton and Thomas Keating. 
What marks the practice most for me is an inner letting go and surrender to the presence and spirit of God. It is in this place of powerlessness and surrender that it seems God is free to work within me, healing emotional wounds, softening my heart, moving me beyond my conditioning, affirming my wholeness and belovedness, enlivening my imagination, and helping me to hear anew. So what does this orientation have to do with the kingdom of God? Alcoholics Anonymous has this exquisite phrase, my best thinking got me here. It strikes me that we could say the same collectively as a planet. Our best thinking got us here. (laughs) It's pretty funny. So if I am to take seriously visions of healing, unity, jubilee, justice, and mercy, it seems to me that, as Paul asserted, he must increase and I must decrease. If Jesus needed to get away for long spells of quiet, perhaps I do too. And if, when under great duress, Jesus practiced the surrender of, not my will, but yours, maybe I should too. Our country and planet are hurting badly and in need of healing to help us overcome our collective conditioning. I find it to be fantastic news that just maybe the fuel, stamina, and unlikely imagination needed to realize the kingdom comes through time set apart for stillness, as well as surrender in the midst of my biggest face plants and struggles. Through participation and co-creation with the movement of the divine, rather than my striving or willfulness. I treasure the invitation to be a participant in a mysterious dance as old as time that I have the incredible joy to witness unfold around me. I feel the practice of stillness is worth your attention. If surrender or silence terrify you, my challenge would be this. Try it for the smallest amount of time you can bear in whatever form comes most naturally to you as an experiment. Notice what the experience is like for you. And then try it some more if you like. I was talking with a friend this past week who was advising a friend about addressing a congregation in a special service following the Pulse shooting. The writer, a white heterosexual man, had centered the sermon around the resurrection, and my friend gave him gentle feedback. She suggested that the resurrection is a privileged position because it is so far from mirroring the present reality of the Latinx and LGBTQI communities. As a person with privilege, the resurrection is a tempting message for me to cling to as well. But after this week, I too want to close not with victory, but with the cross. So here is my blessing for you. May you have self-compassion and merciful community when you reach your 50th gate. May you receive the peace and grace you need to move forward when you fall flat on your face shut down with shame, or paralyzed by fear and overwhelm. May we, together, have the unshakable assurance of our belovedness to see the most difficult parts of ourselves and the ways we are complicit in empire. And may we, bathed in the presence and love of God, take up our cross as a lived response to the unfairness, racism, homophobia, Islamophobia, fear, hatred, and violence in our world for the sake of God's kingdom.
So, um, uh, I'd like to say thank you again for for, um, for having us here this evening. It's been a uh, it's been I've really enjoyed putting these these um, songs together with SK. And again, thank you for for, for Billy Billy Feather here on bass, Dan Hall on drums, and all of you here in the community. Uh, I'm going to play you a song from Tracy Chapman right now, uh, from one of her lesser-known recordings. It's the album that this song's from. is called Let It Rain. She recorded it with a guy called John Parrish, who's previously worked with Sparkle Horse and Eels. Uh, and PJ Harvey's a guy from Bristol in England. Anyway. Hope that. Hell- 
To close uh, this evening's proceedings, we've got um, a tune from Leonard Cohen, which uh, one of my favourite songwriters, one of the great songwriters, and has written so many lines, so many couplets that I, I love. But the the line in this, "There's a crack in everything," that's how it gets, and that's how the light gets in. It's probably my favourite line from anybody. If um, if you know the if you know the song and you'd like to join in, uh, particularly during the, the the ring the bells that still can ring, that would be great.
killers in high places say their prayers out loud. But there's someone, there's someone up a thundercloud, and they're going to hear from me. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. sharing with us tonight. Um, as I was in the mountains this week um, with James, we were on a family trip. I do not call it a family vacation. Um, I feel like vacations with your family are more aptly called trips, right? Um, but we were in the mountains, and so SK sent me along. What she was going to be saying or was thinking about, and the two things stuck One was the need to share story more. You need to share your story more. And the last um, was the blessing that she gave us. And as I was thinking about the the week that unfolded, and um, we were kind of out in the middle of nowhere, so we had Wi-Fi, but no cell service. There was Wi-Fi at the house. Um, And my friend Pam... um, 
texted. And so kind of a bit of background and how this sort of connects to SK and what I'm about to say. Pam and I do Girl State together. And for both of us, we are the first really close heart friend person of color for either of us. So she grew up in western Tennessee, primarily in a black community. I grew up in East Tennessee, primarily in a white community. We did Girl State together at the age of 16, met through that process, and realized we both needed to share and tell the other person our story. And in that space of almost a decade, over a decade, especially the past six, seven years of really deep story sharing, we have created a space um, where we know one another's belovedness and we can hold it. And we also aren't afraid to call out and the other person times when we need to see parts of ourselves that we cannot see or parts of the system that we're playing into that we cannot see, and often that is Pam calling that out in me and showing me how even as a progressive pastor, female pastor, who's all about justice, um, I'm still short-sighted often in my thinking. And so part of our deal Part of our friendship, how this works, is Pam needed a safe space anytime a black person was killed by the police to text someone or call and say they have lynched another beloved sister or brother. And know that that could be put into, be told to someone that was white that could hold that pain. So that's background. So when Alton Sterling was killed, my dear friend Pam texted and said, Another one of my people have been lynched. Time for Nina. I'm ready to be free. And by Nina, she means Nina Simone, because after every lynching or trial that Pam faces, she's getting her PhD in history up at Rutgers and is studying racism in America um, and the role of women within that. She listens to Nina. And I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. And she plays it on repeat, and she weeps. She doesn't always expect me to weep, but she wants me to hold the space for her wherever I am, that that's okay for her to do. And so she wept, knowing that she has no desire to become a mother if it means birthing a brown baby into a world with so much injustice. So then less than 24 hours later, 36th, Philando was shot and bled to death on Facebook. And then 24 hours later, five Dallas police officers were killed. And each time, Pam sent that text. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Our world, our country, our fellow neighbors, our friends. I know I'm not the only one with a friend like Pam. Brothers and sisters are in mourning Their lives are in jeopardy. Justice seems like a fleeting possibility. Freedom for all seems like a cruel joke. In some ways, what SK was saying, right, about like wanting to go and do and fix and fix and fix. Like, we just, something's not, we aren't doing it, right? And it's so heavy 
and weighty. And then we often find ourselves, right, still in places that are pretty homogenous when it comes to race. And it seems like darkness is taking over all of the light in our world. But then we hear songs like Leonard Cohen and in his brilliance, yet there's a crack in everything. That's how light gets in. There is a crack in everything. That's how light gets in. And I would say from SK's story tonight, there was a crack, and that is how light got in. So maybe, just maybe, the practice of contemplation, of creating space, the practice of asking ourselves the hard questions and really reflecting on how we individually, collectively, might have the courage to reflect and contemplate before walking and acting and working toward justice and love and light in the world is in fact the process of how we continue stubbornly and passionately to ring bells that still can ring and to ring bells in spaces with friends who don't see the difference between all lives matter and black lives matter. Perhaps it's naming to ourselves that we do not have to know all about race or white supremacy or privilege or love or justice before acting. We just have to link arms and move and know that the spirit is with us. Maybe for a lot of us in this room, we must forget this notion of perfection and having to have a perfect offering to bring into the space of justice and love and redemption in the world. For the reality is there is a crack in everything. And so perhaps in the naming of the crack, of the cracks within ourselves, within the empire, within the status quo structures that too often paralyze us, maybe by naming, seeing, and working on the massive crack of our penal justice system and the systemic three-fifths person racism that is the foundation of our country, maybe by naming these and seeing these and not being afraid of the cracks, but rather seeing it as light poking in. Maybe, just maybe, something might change. For week after week, we gather here. Week after week, we gather here as people captivated by the gospel, as people who believe in something called hope, who believe that, in fact, it was a light, a crack, a flicker of love that came into our world through a babe in a manger, a rabbi agitating the powers that be, and continues to come in a God who enters our suffering. And the darkness did not, could not, would not, and will not overcome that light. And so we come now, each of us, with our cracks of light, with our questions, with our privilege, with our hurt, with our pain, with our fear of what it means to act, should we act, with our uncertainties. We come to an open table 
An open table where all are welcomed, loved, and made whole. An open table that changes us and changes the world. An open table where sometimes we come and realize the cross that we may, may need to continue to carry. A table where sometimes we come and see the resurrection hope. An open table where each of the cracks of light come together and shine just a little bit brighter so that when we leave the table, we can go out and shine just a bit more light into the darkness that is trying to overcome this world. The reason Pam always tells me when she's listening to Nina is to remind me that I am her free friend, she says. And she always tells me, Molly, because you are free, you cannot be silent for there are far too many black lives singing. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say, say them loud, say them clear, for the whole world round to hear. We are free. And we are called to act and shine our light alongside Pam's light and others' black lives' light. For it is in the shining of light, in the ringing of bells, in the standing up, in the walking together, in the witnessing, in the being uncomfortable in engagement of hard conversation and in difficult spaces, that the transformative love and light of God that we experience each week at the open table burst forth into the world. So may we come with our cracks. May we come with our love. May we come with our willingness to be transformed as we break bread and share wine or grape juice in conversation and love and light in a world right now that seems so, so dark. So come. Thank you.